interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. Thursday night, um, my hosts, Steve Fulick and David Jones, uh, hosted me for dinner. And at dinner, I told them a story that I would like to tell you because um, I think it fits. There's a, a book entitled Open Secrets by Richard Lisher. Richard Lisher teaches homiletics at uh, Duke uh, Divinity School uh, in Durham. And he tells, it's a memoir of his years in ministry and of how when he was a young and foolish minister, he needed to be taught a lot by people in his congregation. And in particular, uh, because he had gone to a seminary that taught him to preach in a way that nobody could really understand. He had been to a big Eastern liberal university, and uh, they were full of existentialism at the time and uh, complicated jargon. So when he would preach, he would, at the start, when he was just beginning, he would say things like, here we have both an essential and an existential dynamic merged in the concrete, self-transcendent ambiguity of the now. And, um, you know, everybody that heard him wanted to say, could you give an example of that? Uh, So... He gets a call to a church in southern Illinois, uh, which is in a rural setting, and people there are you know, driving tractors and butchering hogs, and here's this new young preacher from Union Seminary in New York, and he's talking to them about essential and existential dynamics, and they don't know what he's talking about. So he doesn't get any response at all from his congregation, and he's puzzling over that and feeling a little anxious about it. And about five, six weeks in, he gets uh, a pulpit exchange with an African-American congregation, black church, and he says, oh, this is going to be much better because these people all do call and response. And it's the response part that I'm looking forward to. So he goes to the black church and, you know, essential, existential dynamics merged, et cetera, et cetera, and he is stunned by the fact that people there are stone silent. Until four minutes in, a woman in the fifth pew suddenly cries out, Help him, Jesus! (laughs) Now you want an example of compassion in action. There you have it. I have been handed some highly intelligent questions that I'm going to have to answer much more briefly than I would like because we need to get on and stay at least a little bit on schedule. Please give an example of how Jesus limited his compassion by prudence. Thank you. Well, thank you, whoever wrote this question. Um, I first want to say that when I talk about there needing to be other considerations on the table besides compassion, I don't mean that uh, our compassion for people who are hurt is limited by other things being on the table. What's limited is what we do about their predicament. 
we may want to uh, do anything that will relieve their pain right now. But maybe prudence tells us that this is not, in the long run, going to help them much. Um, so that first. But now, think of this. Please give an example of how Jesus limited his compassion by prudence. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There were other dead people in the cemetery that day. They stayed right where they were. Did Jesus lack compassion for those people? I don't think so. But he didn't raise them. So there was something else going on besides Jesus' compassion. A plan of God. Uh, the wisdom of the ages. That the time was not yet ripe for a general resurrection. Jesus healed a few lepers that we know about. He didn't heal them all. Did he lack compassion for the other ones? I don't think so. But his action was limited by the wisdom of his Father in heaven. And so on and so forth. The, the Gospels tell us that Jesus brought the kingdom of God very near, but it wasn't fulfilled in his teaching and ministry. We saw all kinds of signs that it will be, but not yet. And that's not because Jesus was lacking in compassion. It's because of the plan of God and the fact that Jesus was the wisdom of God uh, following the plan, in my view. We have compassion for others because of God's compassion toward us. Absolutely true, and I wish I'd said a little bit more about that, that um, all of these virtues, insofar as they are God's gift, uh, turn us all into vehicles, conduits. We are not the origin of these wonderful virtues, but we can be conduits of them when God fills us with them. Speak to the relationship of the compassion of individual Christians and mercy ministry within the church. That's a complicated issue, and it's a great question. Um, my own feeling is that uh, individual Christians feeling compassion then want to band together with other like-feeling Christians in order to do things together that they can't do individually. You can't do um, an outreach ministry to a big group of hurting people all by yourself. You need all kinds of other people who um, have interest and compassion to band with you so you can have a joint impact. And that's a marvelous thing. Virtually all the things that I mentioned earlier, you know, hospitals, orphanages, adoption centers, all the, the um, ministries of mercy of, along the ages by Christians were by groups of Christians. They may have been uh, spearheaded by some individual far-seeing uh, compassionate person, but they ended up being uh, the ministry of groups. So my guess is that the relationship is typically that individual Christians feeling compassion want to maximize their impact by banding together and reflecting then the whole body of Christ, which is what they belong to. The body of Christ is so often in the New Testament referred to in plurals. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's plural. That is, 
all of you, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Clothe yourselves with compassion, not just individually, but as the church. A balance issue again, as believers, we can't outgive God. I struggle with that balance of prudent giving when we are to be faithful and trust God. Yeah, that's a great, great question and has to do with stuff that we may feel like part of the time we don't get right. Um, how much of your time and energy do you give away to people who really need it uh, without imperiling your ability to have something left to give in the future? How much of your time and energy do you give away without burning out so that you have nothing to give to others for some time until you recover? Uh, my guess is that some of us are inclined to give more than we can and that we are always on the verge of burning out and need to be a little bit more prudent and hesitant or at least thoughtful about the fact that we are finite people, we can't save people, we can't uh, fix everything. We can't fix deep things in even this one person. Um, and we don't want to render ourselves paralyzed. You know, if I'm going to have surgery in the morning, I do not want my surgeon staying up all night compassionating over my problem. I want my surgeon to sleep like a baby and to come to work with a kind of brisk attitude toward my problem. Uh, medical personnel, social workers, teachers, parents, everybody has to have some blend of compassion and wisdom. Now, people are going to tend toward, you know, spending it all, or they're going to tend toward being stingy with what they have to offer. Those are things that need address in our own chemistry, in our own balance. I get that. But um, I don't doubt that prudence is part of the mix. Anyway, great questions. Thank you so much. I'll take these questions home with me because when I debrief for my wife Kathleen, to whom I have been married for 43 years, she'll say, well, what were some of the questions that people asked? And I'll say, well, I have someone right here in my pocket. <laughs> Okay, uh, since you have been raised with Christ as God's chosen people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility. Humility. I once heard a minister begin a speech by uh, talking about himself for quite a while, and especially about his achievements. He said he was privileged to counsel senators and CEOs. He said he was privileged to preach on five continents and to write books that were translated into ten languages. He said he was privileged to perform the weddings and funerals of some of the most powerful people in the land. Everywhere he went, he was privileged to touch thousands of people with words that were so touching to them. In fact, all these privileges had touched him too. He said, when I think of all the ministries that God has called me to, I just feel so humble. 
We play tricks with humility. St. Paul knew all about them. Colossians 3 follows Colossians 2. And by, by the way, the day that I noticed that, it just made me feel so humble. <laughs> chapter 3 follows chapter 2. And in chapter 2, Paul twice warns against what he calls false humility. Fake humility. Now, the forms of false humility that St. Paul talks about in Colossians 2 may be a little obscure. But from the rest of the Bible, especially from its wisdom literature, and from our own experience as Christian people living in God's world, we know a little bit about false humility. False humility is part of the old life that needs to die. False humility is part of our old self. False humility is a mask we wear in public while we do our real thinking behind the mask. False humility. People sometimes use it to fish for praise. We've all met people who run themselves down. Oh, they say, I'm so fat. I'm so stupid. I'm so ugly. And then they wake. They wait for you to contradict them. They wait for you to shore them up with a mighty word. I'm so ugly, they say. And so you shore them up with a mighty word. You, you say, no, you're, you're not that ugly. Um, I know a guy who's way uglier than you. Tricks we play with humility. False humility is one of them. You can sometimes hear a little false humility in people's religious testimonies. They testify to the sins that were part of their old life, and each time they testify, those old sins get a little bigger, a little heavier, a little more dramatic. It's as if people are saying, you know, I'm sorry that I committed all these sins, but at the same time, I'm here to tell you they were pretty interesting. Interesting guy, interesting sins, dramatic. Got to hear my story. False humility. People fake humility for the same reason they fake anything else. They care about their image, and humility is part of it. False humility. There are lots of forms of it, and you can find another one among people who flatter you. They figuratively bow and scrape. And typically, they do it because they want something from you. And their fake humility is their strategy. Famous, famous example in English literature in uh, Charles Dickens' novel, David Copperfield, which gives us a figure by the name of Uriah Heep, spelled H-E-E-P, but pronounced Heep, Uriah Heep who played on other people's sense of self-importance in order to get what he wanted from them. He says, I was humble to this person and humble to that person, pulling off a cap here and making a bow there. That's how a man gets ahead. That's how a man gets a medal. That's how he gets elected deacon. I ate humble pie with an appetite. People love to see it. And they'll do right by us. 
This is put on humility. And St. Paul wants us to take it off. It's part of the old life that needs to die, to be thrown off, to be killed off. In Colossians 3, Paul says to us as God's chosen people, as people who have been raised with Christ, clothe yourselves with humility, not false humility. And let me add now, because I need to add this in a Christian context, not humiliation either. In my view, it is not a Christian virtue to cringe or grovel. That's not what humility is about. That's what humiliation is about. It's true that you and I and the rest of the world are ruined people in so many ways. But because of how God created us in his own image, we are nobility in ruins. We are nobility in ruins. Psalm 8 says that we have been created a little lower than the heavenly beings and that God has crowned us with righteousness and mercy. You may not spit on somebody who's wearing a crown. Our Lord took humiliation, but he took it because he was going to the cross for us. It does not follow that we who cannot save the world are called upon to endure humiliation from anybody who wants to visit it on us. It does not follow. Jesus himself who being in the form of God, that's not a disguise, by the way, that when he was in the form of God, he emptied himself and became a servant. His servanthood is not a disguise. It's who he is being in the form of God. God is always serving people who turn their backs on him. God is pouring out rain in the fields of the unjust as well as the just. Jesus, who was a servant, was not a doormat. He did not do everything that people wanted him to do. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Didn't do it. Teacher, do a sign here. Didn't do it. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Didn't do it. Jesus was a servant on his terms. And they were God's terms. There are all kinds of people who think that because you are a Christian, they can count on you to be humiliated in their favor. Not so. We've had this problem for centuries. White people preach humility to non-white people. Men preach it to women. The strong preach it to the weak. And the message gets garbled on the way. What was preached was humility. What was heard was humiliation. That's why Jesus goes after the Pharisees so hard. They were really good at preaching humility, but they always preached it to other people. 
So let me add a caution about humility. To have the mind of Christ is to have the mind of a servant. But this does not mean that we owe submission to tyrants. Domestic or foreign. People who want us to kiss their boots in the name of Jesus. No, that's not humility. That's humiliation. We do not help people by simply reinforcing their arrogance. We don't serve people. I mean, there are times when we will submit. Of course we will. Submission to each other as believers is part of what it means to be a part of the family of God. I, I know that. But we don't serve people well by submitting to them when what they really need from us is a form of resistance. A woman who has been beaten up by her husband again, and each time he is sorry, and again, and he's sorry again, and again, and he's sorry again. Her calling as a Christian is not submission. It's resistance. It's holy resistance to this evil. And to tell him in the name of Christ, I will not submit to this one more time. False humility can include humiliation. All of the virtues have counterfeits. Counterfeit compassion is typically sentimentality. Counterfeit humility is false humility, fishing for praise, fishing for somebody to do right by us, like Uriah Heath, turning humility into humiliation. All these virtues have counterfeits. So what's the real thing? When you're talking about humility as a biblically instructed Christian, what are you talking about? Well, the first and most important thing to see about humility in the Bible is that it is a species of wisdom. And what is wisdom in the Bible? Wisdom is knowledge of God and of God's world and the knack of fitting yourself into it. Wisdom in the Bible is the knowledge of God and of God's world and then a practical knack of fitting yourself into it, of knowing how in God's world to swim with the stream, to go with the flow, to cut with the grain. The humble person, in biblical perspective, is a person who is fully attuned to reality, who understands who God is, who we are, who others are, what the world is like, and can find his or her proper place inside this whole scheme of things. Really interesting that in English, and by the way, um, 
doing etymologies doesn't always help, but it does in this case. In English, the word humility comes from the word humus. H-U-M-U-S. And what does humus mean? Earth. Soil. A humble person, etymologically in English, and it works in the Bible, a humble person is a person who is right down to earth. This is a person who has his or her two feet on the ground. This isn't somebody who's flying off in fantasies about their own grandeur. This isn't somebody who's flying off in fantasies about how God is his junior partner. This isn't somebody who's flying off in fantasies about how he's the best there ever was and there better not be anybody who tries to outdo me. A humble person is somebody, not a humiliated person, but a person who has his or her two feet right on the ground. A person who is down to earth, who can look out at reality straight, can see that God is infinitely superior to us, can see other human beings as brothers, as sisters if they are in Christ, as colleagues on a faculty, as fellow students in university, as fellow citizens in a city, state, or nation, can see people who are all around us our peers. And we have our own place in this peerage. Neither a humiliated inferior nor an exalted superior. We are people with our two feet on the ground, we are people who are down to earth and who can gladly find ourselves as a peer, as a brother or sister, as a colleague, as a fellow. Which reminds me of Harry Truman. A wonderful biography of Harry Truman by David McCullough from whom I'm deriving this now. McCullough tells us in his biography that Harry Truman had the misfortune of being president in between Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Dwight D. Eisenhower. Dwight D. Eisenhower was, of course, a person who had been in charge of D-Day of the assault on Normandy, who had the aura of a commander. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was a colossus on the world stage. And here in between them was little Harry Truman, the only American president never to go to college, a haberdasher from Kansas City. And yet, Truman's accomplishments were actually pretty substantial. McCullough tells us that we got from Harry Truman the first civil rights message ever sent to Congress. We got an executive order ending segregation in the armed forces. We got the Truman Doctrine. We got the recognition of Israel. We got the Berlin Airlift. And especially we got the Marshall Plan, which saved Western Europe after World War II from economic and political ruin, and which stands today as one of the great American gifts the 20th century. 
Harry Truman had self-respect and humility. They are a pair. They do not pull in opposite directions. A humble person has self-respect because he knows, if he is a Christian, that he is a child of God, made in God's own, own image. A humble person has self-respect understanding that he or she is a unique divine thought, an unrepeatable divine inspiration. A humble person has self-respect as a colleague, a peer, a brother, a sister, a person who fits into the scheme of things in a fine, weighty way that is also right down to earth. A person with her feet on the ground who has a quiet confidence and self-respect. Well, Harry Truman, whose religious allegiances are a little indefinite, but who nonetheless uh, seemed to have from God this wonderful combination of self-respect and humility, uh, Truman wanted excellent people all around him. He hadn't gone to college. He was a, a small man from Kansas City, haberdasher from Kansas City, never mind. He wanted the best subordinates he could get. Proud leaders want subordinates who won't outshine them. Humble leaders want subordinates who will outshine them and who will bring to the table gifts that they themselves don't have. So, Truman appointed George C. Marshall to be Secretary of State. He had Omar Bradley and Matthew Ridgway over at the Pentagon. He had Eisenhower as the head of NATO. He had Dean Acheson and Averill Harriman and Clark Clifford. These were all distinguished men from Ivy League universities who belonged to the American landed gentry of the East. And one day, an advisor cautioned Truman the advisor said, look, Mr. President, if you, if you choose stars like George Marshall as your Secretary of State, people will compare him to you and they'll think that Marshall would have made a better president. Truman said, and they'd be right. Marshall would have made a better president. But he's not president. I'm president. So I want Marshall right by my side. A humble person is realistic about things. This is the Bible's message all through the wisdom literature. A humble person is realistic about things, knows his or her place in the universe relative to God, relative to others, relative to non-human creation. Humble people have their radar turned on to reality outside themselves. They're really interested in what's going on outside themselves. Much more interested in what's going on outside themselves than in what's going on inside themselves. There are real people out there beyond my own imagination. Real values to grasp. Real beauty to, to admire. Humility is the kind of wisdom that lets people deal with reality, not with fantasy. 
the humble person is glad to acknowledge you as a peer. Glad to acknowledge you as a brother or a sister if they are fellow Christians. Glad to acknowledge you as a colleague on a faculty, as a fellow student in a student body, a fellow citizen in a state. And a humble person being attuned to reality outside himself, outside herself, takes a keen interest in what's going on out there. By contrast, the proud person, and the wisdom literature of the Bible is full of this too. By the way, some of the time the wisdom literature just pairs up the proud with the foolish. They are a pair. If you are proud, you are foolish. If you are humble, you are wise. The proud trap themselves in some combination of narcissism and conceit. The proud person is narcissistic, so he thinks a lot about himself. The proud person is conceited, so he thinks a lot of himself. He's out of touch with reality because his view of himself is out of whack, out of line, out to lunch. It's unrealistic. On a faculty, this would be a person who leaves a meeting thinking less of what he heard than of what he said. Here's a person... Uh, who rattles on and on about himself and then finally turns to you and says, look, I've been rattling on about myself long enough. What do you think of me? <laughs> All this is folly in excelsis. Why is it so foolish to be proud? Well, I think we all know pride isolates the proud, aborting the very possibility of real fellowship. For real fellowship, for real intimacy, for real trust, you need common ground. You need people who are looking at you as a peer, as a neighbor, as a fellow as a colleague. Pride aborts all that. Another way that pride is foolish is that pride is subject to the tolerance effect, the law of diminishing returns. The more self-absorbed we are, the less there is to find absorbing. We're like people who are trapped in an old-fashioned telephone booth, breathing their own carbon dioxide and not getting any fresh oxygen from the outside. There's less and less to breathe. The humble person is always pulling in interesting things, pulling in what interesting people are saying and thinking. 
pulling in these marvelous things in the scripture about God, pulling in the the marvelous oddities of God's non-human creation, you know, the way of a squirrel with a nut, the way a chicken pecks, the way your dog, when you as much as get up, goes for the place where the leash is, and then looks back at you, looks at the leash, looks back at you. That's wonderful. To take in all the peculiarities, the particularities of life outside ourselves is sheer health. All of it aborted by pride or arrogance. We finally slump into our own core, thinking our old thoughts, telling our old lies, breathing our own carbon dioxide all the time, folly in excelsis. Like spitting into the wind. Brings just the opposite of what we want. A proud person may believe that if he boasts of his accomplishments, people will admire him more. It's almost childlike. You know, you say to your child, Charlie, don't brag. If somebody's going to praise you, let them do it. Don't do it yourself. And Charlie says, but what if they don't? Anne Lamott says in one of her books that the proud who have this childish need to toot their own horn will find a way to do it even in unpromising circumstances. It's a rainy day, and the proud person says to you, Boy, you think it's raining today. I remember one year, I think it was the year I got my Guggenheim Fellowship. Uh, anyway, it really rained that year. If, since you have been raised with Christ, clothe yourselves with humility. The humble person accepts reality and doesn't try to reinvent it to suit himself or herself. The humble person accepts other people as who they are and doesn't try to reinvent them to suit himself or herself. The humble person accepts the superlative majesty of God and doesn't try to reimagine God so that God turns out to be a whole lot more like us. These acceptances play out in certain habits of highly humble people, and I'm going to mention, predictably enough, seven of them. You can sort of keep track of where we are in the speech, you know, because seven of them and then it's over. So we're making progress as we go along. First, the humble person accepts human deficiencies with humor and goodwill. Ordinary human deficiencies, not the glaring ones that call for us as parents or as judges or as teachers to do something, but the ordinary kind of predictable human deficiencies have to be accepted with good humor and goodwill. The humble person is not ashamed of her uncouth relatives. 
perfectly willing to be seen with them. If her husband isn't as smart as she is, she doesn't apologize to anybody about that. The humble person understands that we all have strengths, we all have weaknesses, and doesn't think that other people's strengths put her in the shade. Doesn't think that other people's strengths threaten her own. And she doesn't think that other people's weaknesses make her look bad. Let me repeat this. The humble person understands that we all have strengths and weaknesses and doesn't think that other people's strengths threaten her own or put her in the shade. And she doesn't think that other people's weaknesses, when they are with her, make her look bad. In other words, she isn't always thinking about other people reflections as reflections on her. She has a basic willingness to see others as her peers, as her colleagues, as her brothers, as her sisters, as her neighbors, as her fellow citizens, and to find her own natural place in this scheme as part of God's world. Second, humble people ask lots of questions because that's the way of wisdom. Wise people get interested in things, they get interested in people, and they start asking questions. How did you do that? How do you know when you've got it right? Who taught you? How long does it take to learn this? Where did you get your faith? What are you doing to nurture your faith? You obviously have so much of it. What are you doing to nurture it? The wise person does not mind asking a question that will reveal his ignorance. We notice that in school all the time, in seminary, in college. The people who are going to go far ask questions a lot, and even questions that reveal their ignorance. They don't care. They want to learn. They would rather lose their ignorance by asking a question then keep their ignorance by keeping still. A wise and humble person with somebody whose name he ought to know but can't remember will ask for his name. And if a third party comes up, and now your job is to introduce the person of no name to this third party who is coming up, the wise person will look at the no-name person and adopt a co-conspiratorial air and say to him, excuse me, 
You don't happen to recall your name, do you? <laughs> it puts the whole thing in the kind of amusing light that you want. Because we all have weaknesses when it comes to remembering people's names. Third, humble people typically wait for an invitation to talk about themselves. They don't presume that their lives are fascinating to others. And maybe especially not if they are ministers. We teach our students, and you may agree with this or not, that's okay. We teach our students that preachers ought to tell stories about themselves or their families in the pulpit only about once a season. And that their general rule of thumb is, I will not talk about myself or my family, no matter how charming we all are. I will not talk about us any more than I have to in order to make a point that's general to everybody not unique to me, but to my family. My job is to preach the gospel. Not to preach the gospel of myself and my family. That's the rule. But I one time heard John Buchanan at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago tell us of this rule at the beginning of the sermon. Say, you know, ministers can't talk about their families because it puts their families in an awkward position being sort of the getting the glare of publicity from the pulpit. Maybe they don't want that. Maybe the people in the pew are thinking that the minister thinks his family is more interesting than theirs, and that's why he keeps talking about it. So the rule of thumb is ministers don't talk about their families, but I'm here to tell you that all rules are off when it comes to my granddaughter. And then he told us an absolutely wonderful story about his granddaughter that was wonderful because it was not just about her. It was about all of us. And we could listen to it because it had the ring of authenticity for all of us. Fourth, you can see we're making progress. We're tripping right along here. Fourth, a humble person is a good receiver. She receives good things from God and good things from others with an open and grateful heart. She doesn't think she has to be independent. She doesn't think she has to be independent of God or independent of others. She doesn't say things like, I don't want to be obliged. She is willing to feel indebted willing to feel grateful. When a gift comes, she receives it like a child. She doesn't compare or complain. She doesn't get cynical and say, okay, what's going on here? Why did I get this? A humble person receives gifts the way a child does. And Jesus points to this doesn't he, in Luke chapter 18, when he says to a group of people to whom he has just told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's as if he says to them, you know, while we're in the lowliness department with this tax collector, 
Luke tells us the story of people bringing babies to Jesus and Jesus blessing them and the disciples trying to hold them off, telling them not to bother Jesus with this. And Jesus says, oh no, let the children come to me. Truly, I tell you, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will never enter it. Receive the kingdom of God like a little child. How does a little child receive the kingdom of God? How does a baby receive the kingdom of God? A baby enters a world in which all kinds of preparations have been made for her. She enters a world that already has barn dancing and bike racing. It's already got L.L. Bean. It's already got war and rumor of war and marriage. All this antedates her. She enters a world a world in which way back in history God led his people out of Egypt. Way back in history, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, was incarnate and taught and suffered and died and was resurrected. And the Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost and the church was mighty across the ages. All of this, if she is the child of believers, all of this is for her. The kingdom of God goes before her and it's above her and it's under her and all she needs to do is to receive it the way she will receive her mother's milk and love. Nudge an infant with a fingertip or a nipple and her mouth will open and she will try to suck like a whirlpool. She's receiving the provisions of God in his bountiful kingdom. Jesus says, unless you learn to receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you will never enter it. The humble love to receive things, to be grateful for them, and to give thanks for them, because this is the way of wisdom. Fifth, a humble person doesn't try to make his or her children over in his own image. He doesn't think of his child as his project. Sometimes read about children whose parents hope to turn them into star tennis players and name them things like thunder, anticipating that one day they will thunder on the tennis court. That child sounds like a project. A wise parent doesn't make a child into a project or think of a child as his invention. A wise Christian parent thinks of children as God's gift, thinks of them as God's project. A person made in God's image. And so a wise parent lets God have some responsibility for his or her child. Some of us have children that were away from the Lord for a time or are still away from the Lord. Whose project is this child? We can't stop praying 
we can't stop worrying. But there is some big part of us that has to turn the child over to God. Because our child is God's project. And we don't know what God has in mind for our child four years from now. Ten years from now. When our child is on his deathbed, we do not know. And so we give our child over to God, the Father of mercies, whose grace is far more stubborn than our child's indifference. My mentor, the man responsible for my being in ministry now for over 40 years, my mentor said to me one time, you know, we want our children to grow. And we even want our children to grow a little away from ourselves, to be the person God intends them to be. We want our children to grow. And we ache when they do. Six. A humble person is full of good humor and irony, and especially about himself and his humility. There's an old Mac Davis ballad that has the spirit of it just right. It goes like this, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror and get better looking every day. To know me is to love me. I must be a hmm of a man. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. The antidote for stuffiness is laughter. And the person who can laugh at himself is the person we want to spend time with. Seventh, last. Humble people own up to their sins. They laugh at what's merely foolish in their lives, but they grieve over their sins. And then they trust the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, including their own. I think it's rare enough these days in our no-fault culture, some of which has found its way into our churches, I think it's rare enough to see somebody grieve over their sins that when it happens and we see it, we are struck. We feel like we've just stepped onto holy ground. My wife Kathleen, who has taught me much over 43 years, was a um, Christian school teacher for 25 years, learned a lot, taught a lot, taught me a lot. She once had a student I'll call Ken. Ken had trouble with school because he was extremely high-strung, hot-wired, hyperactive. He couldn't sit still. He couldn't listen very well, couldn't speak quietly. He was smart, and he loved God. He loved God today. 
But he couldn't listen in class very well because there was a storm in his soul that was drowning everything else out. So Kathleen rigged up a little signal system with Ken to interrupt the storm in his soul from time to time by having Ken do three loops of the elementary part of the school and then come back in and sit down. And somehow this would kind of break the spell and Ken would be okay for a little while until it was time for Kathleen to signal him and then he'd go do it again. Well, one day Ken was really, really agitated and um, he got really wound up. So Kathleen signaled to him. He got up. And by the way, his drill was that each time he passed the door, he had to you know, put up one finger for the first round, two fingers for the second. And when he entered for the third time, three fingers and he sit down. So, uh, you know, Kathleen was teaching the students, and pretty soon she saw Ken at the door with one finger, and a little while later with two, and a little while later with three, and then he came in and sat down. And uh, Kathleen thought nothing of it, but it was just before um, noon recess. And um, when um, she got into the room by herself, a fellow teacher came in and said, Kathleen, I saw something kind of weird going on. I saw Ken uh, leave your room and then sit down in the hall. After a while, he got up and he showed you one finger. And then he sat down again, and pretty soon he got up and he showed you two. And then he sat down, and pretty soon he got up and showed you three and walked away. What was that all about? So Kathleen, when Ken came back into the room, said, Ken, um, Miss so-and-so told me about what she saw in the hall, and here's what she saw. She hung his head, and she said, Ken, that wasn't honest. Our deal is that you signal me when you've really done a loop, and you didn't do your loops. You just gave me the, single, the signal as if you had. That's not honest, Ken, and we've got to think this over. Think it over tonight, and tomorrow we'll talk about what's next. So school was dismissed, and pretty soon, Kathleen was putting her stuff together, pretty soon a different teacher came into the room and said, I just left Ken at the back of the school. He was crying his heart out. And I said to him, Ken, what's, what's wrong? What's the matter? And she said, he said to me with a tone of voice that I cannot entirely reproduce, but which I will never forget as long as I live. He cried out to me, I'm dishonest. And she put her arm around him and told him he was a child of God, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and that any dishonesty he had in him was forgiven and that he had to go home in peace. I think there was some dying and rising going on behind the school that day. I think there was Good Friday and Easter going on behind the school that day. I think the teacher who heard Ken say, I'm dishonest, and who told him that he was a child of God, I think that teacher was a minister of grace and that she understood that since we have been raised with Christ as God's chosen people, 
holy and dearly loved, we are to clothe ourselves with humility because humility fits people who have been raised with Christ. Humility is part of the family uniform of the people of God. What I'd like to do is have lunch, and then if there are questions uh, after lunch, before we launch into forgiveness, um, I'll take them. Okay? All right.